From the heart of Hub City, downtown Moncton, New Brunswick, this is Well and Fair. I'm your host, Anna Larad, and I want to see change in my lifetime. So let's talk. Hi, everyone. We're back this week with Nikki Lyons McFarlane. That's a name you might recognize from almost any article that came out about Policy 713 over the summer. <laughs> you, you were in a lot of articles, hey? Yeah, it was like almost every day or every week it felt like there was something new popping up. How'd that come to be that you got to be kind of a bit of the voice of this as regards to the Policy 713 changes? I kind of got uh, started on Twitter, kind of getting angry and kind of getting loud on Twitter. And my name just started popping up. And then one journalist was like, oh, hey, talk to this person and this person. And it just kind of snowballed from there. I'm really uh, grateful you were able to make it out from Fredericton. I know that's not the world's shortest drive to come to Moncton uh, for a podcast. Nikki's also the chair of Imprint Youth Association. What does the Imprint Youth Association do? We work with 2S LGBTQIA plus youth in the city of Fredericton. We do drop-ins, educational sessions. We've had special events like, like a queer prom, uh, family picnics and things like that. Oh, amazing. Um, and I'm really glad you're here today because we kind of had something a little bit different planned for this episode. Where, because uh, last week with my guest Pascal Joel Faltendagd from uh, Hello Gender, we did a big overview on basically why outing trans youth is dangerous, <laughs> why some of these changes have people concerned about trans youth getting outed to their families, and uh, kind of going a bit more into the overview. So now I'm really excited to kind of get a bit more specific about maybe specific clips and things that have been said, just in the spirit of clarifying, in the spirit of giving perspective. Mm-hmm. Because um, I, I know it's not a lot of people immediately understood why people were very concerned, but I've definitely had conversations, m- more hedging and more like, well, what's the big deal vibe conversation. So I think it's good to get specifically into the details sometimes. So here we are to do that. But Mr. Speaker, we're seeing a, a rapid onset of gender dysphoria. It's expanded in the last several years and it's becoming popular and trendy. Okay, so that to me was where I wanted to start this conversation is that I feel that a lot of the, cha- the a lot of the changes that have eroded protections for trans youth have come through this lens of being transgender is trendy. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's social. It's not it's not about identity. And um, and then I have a lot to say about rapid onset gender dysphoria. <laughs> oh, a lot of us do. <laughs> Um, I've been trying to think, all right, so maybe context first on, on what that is, because rapid onset gender dysphoria is, it, that's not something that, the, that Premier Higgs uh, made up himself. That's um, it, the origin of that phrase is one, one, by the way, not a body of work, one scientific study that looked at, I mean, technically, I guess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was published in in a journal and stuff, but it, we're getting into that. It was one study um, examining uh, whether being trans or or youth coming out as trans was n- not the result of identity, but whether it was a result of social contagion. So basically, it's like you're talking with friends or you're on social media and you're seeing you're seeing content about trans people. And that's and it's spreading socially. That, mm-hmm. So that's what this was looking at. The way they looked at it is, uh, you know, not it, it, you, you can't really generalize those results very well. So the closest comparison I can think of in my mind, and, and I've given a lot of thought to how to come up with a good comparison, <laughs> is, okay, so imagine for a minute that cis women's healthcare decisions was made 
based on a study that interviewed the husbands of cis women recruited from Andrew Tate's website. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that is fair. That is a fair comparison. This is the closest parallel I can think of because no trans youth were interviewed in this study. Their parents were, and those parents were recruited from transphobic websites. Yeah. And that's how a lot of this research is being done now. It's not, it, it's excluding a lot of the community. A lot of trans youth or trans adults are being excluded from these studies, which I mean, it's really not fair. It's not, we're not going to get accurate scientific results from the studies. No, you can't generalize that to the population at large. This is not a study on which to base policy. No. And I mean, we're, we're seeing that in a lot of how the said one's interview was done. These so-called complaints didn't exist, but if they did, it wouldn't have come from any of their view done, did not come from any conversations with trans youth or supportive parents. Right. Because it's also complaints from whom and why are people complaining? Exactly. Yeah. And something else that I, I think a lot about with this study is, you know, just because the, it's sudden for parents or it's sudden for um, people who are in your life, it does not mean it was sudden for the transgender person, right? Right. And I mean, it takes a while, especially to come out as trans is even a bigger step. And it takes a while for people to be comfortable even saying the words to themselves, let alone externally saying it to the parents. There's a lot of conversations that go on with your with yourself and a lot of conversations that happen with, say, your friends who you might be feel more safer coming out to first. So it may seem sudden, all of a sudden, out of the blue, oh, hey, mom, dad, I, th I think I'm trans. But that, that, those short sentences might have taken years to come forward and say. Definitely. And I can understand if someone's already inclined to being in transphobic spaces, why there might be more motivation to hide your identity from that person. Yeah. Um, but I can also think about just like the world's most well-meaning, liberal-minded, woke parent or whatever. It can still be hard to talk about aspects of yourself you're still trying to come to understand with, with anyone, with your parent, with your friends, with your teachers. Yeah. And there's also a sense of shame happening too. I wouldn't say maybe not shame, but a sense of like concern of making sure that you are certain this is who you are, or maybe you, maybe you just don't want your parents to make a big deal out of it. So you're just trying to become a hundred percent certain yourself. So even in that really sport environment, but they're also seeing on TV and in the news and social media of parents who aren't supportive. And so that's also going through their head of, well, is that going to happen to me? Right. And not in this context, but I can think of other contexts in my life about coming out of the mental health closet or pieces like that, is there can be people who, when you're, when you're talking with them, they, ha they have the right politics or they have the right, you know, they have good knowledge, but at the end of the day, will they look at you differently? Will they look at you with stigma? And so it can still be hard, even in quite a welcoming, safe environment to be like, well, this is who I am. There's no taking it back. It's out there now. Exactly. And maybe it's something you want to keep to yourself for a while or something you want to figure out 100% of. I mean, it's exactly like that. Like you could be in the most welcoming, supportive environment, living with a parent who might be a psychologist, but you still don't want to come out of the closet, the mental health closet and say, hey, I think I have anxiety. Yeah. Even if you're living, even if your parents are in the mental health field, it's still uncertain. There's still a layer of shame, mostly from society. Exactly. Right. And maybe also just, uh, am I feeling solid within myself that I'm ready to take this on? Yeah, that I'm ready to answer questions about this? It's a really big step that comes with even more steps. Exactly. Right. Because once you come out as trans, there's this whole thing of figuring your name out, starting, do you want medical treatments? Do you want this or that? And it's a big step that leads to further steps. 
that anyways that totally makes sense to me the other part of that that clip that i feel is worth talking about is that just because there's more acceptance i think the fact that there's more social acceptance now and there's more role models on on television like we saw laverne cox and orange is the new mm. black and stuff like that i feel like that's at least worth factoring in to why more trans youth feel comfortable coming out rather than this social contagion stuff it, it is and if you look at we can keep going the mental health talk too um with things like adhd and depression this commentary of oh everybody is depressed now well no there's more, more social support. We can keep going the same conversation. Yeah. Of, you know, people feel more comfortable now. There's more resources. There's more social support, more places to go. Right. And I think for, for me as a cis person, the conversation about what it means to be trans is more nuanced now. Yeah. So when I was a little kid, uh, to be uh, uh, like, you know, the, the, the true Scotsman fallacy of like only a true Scotsman would do like uh, to be a true transgendered person it means surgeries it means it means you're on the other side of the binary you know and it, that's very ignorant in hindsight now mm -hmm. but if that's kind of the social understanding of it then i could see for people it's either feeling like you don't necessarily fit into that narrative or you just don't want to fix people's ignorance and have that conversation every day like that's tiring <laughs> you don't want to correct uh, no anna that's not what it no this, this is wednesday i don't want to talk to anna about her her dumb opinions today <laughs> like that's very valid it, it is and i mean there is many many layers now to being trans um you can come out as trans and not have any of the medical procedures but people are still going to ask you about it and it's like it's very invasive feeling too you know there are being trans and not having the medically transition part is still valid absolutely and people are still going to ask and it's like, would you ask a cis person about their private parts? <laughs> it's be so unthinkable. I, you know, it, there it is that fallacy of, you know, so that sometimes people are hesitant to come out because they know this conversation could happen. Exactly. And it's uncomfortable. And, and I understand not wanting to take on more emotional work in life, right? That's, that's completely reasonable to me. And I wish it was completely reasonable to our government. So um, our government likes getting in our pants, though. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so I think there's more subtle ways that this same idea about rapid onset gender dysphoria can come out in conversation without that, that label or that study explicitly being referenced to. There's another clip, um, uh, Nikki, that you sent me prior to this that I felt really spoke to that. So I'm just going to pull that up now. Do you believe gender dysphoria is real? Are you comfortable with the concept? Uh, yes, I, I think it is. It is real, and I think there is a there is certainly a um, many can have uh, concerns, and, and I guess that's why we're saying let's have professionals be involved. Let's not put teachers in the middle of this. Let's have guidance counselors. Let's have uh, psychologists, psychiatrists. Let's have in any situation where where children are having trouble um, and having issues, and they need to have professional discussions. Let's make them available so that we can be really helpful and help them guide them through these these times and in, in in their life when you know there's a lot of uncertainty and and i would say especially probably more so today than many years ago with with certainly social media so for context there um premier higgs was asked the question do you think gender dysphoria is real to which he says yes which i guess that's a good minimum to have Very. credit credit where credit's due <laughs> if that was, because it is it's very real and very difficult and that's part of why the original policy was so optimistic and helpful was creating a safe space in schools to minimize the experience of dysphoria. Mm -hmm. um, but then he goes on to say that professionals should be involved, which 
that's a, a nuanced conversation, but I'm not sure this policy actually accomplishes getting support to trans youth the way I would like to see it done. It really doesn't accomplish that. Um, you know, because it's, uh, I don't even know how to kind of dive into this exactly. Well, the thing is, in other interviews, he was, he's been asked, well, are you going to provide more of these supports? And he never really answered that question, I don't, I don't think. And there's not enough supports in schools already to meet the, the needs of every single student, let alone the specialized needs of trans and gender diverse students, especially those facing unsafe homes. I mean, that's one thing is never addressed, and Bill Hogan has not addressed that either. No, it's, that's already a, a very complicated topic because that's something I'd love to see more resources put to is, you know, so that the, the addressing the, the, the gaps in the foster care system, addressing, um, you know, supports for families and having, you know, uh, social workers and supports that can intervene in unsafe homes. Like, these are all things we talk about on the podcast that I, I care a lot about F forcing a or encouraging now. That's the new language. Mm -hmm. We're not forcing. We are encouraging a trans youth who ask their teachers, hey, can you call me by this name? Hey, can you call me by these pronouns? They're now being encouraged to go into counseling regardless of their level of comfort with counseling or their level of distress at being uh, uh whether the, uh i was gonna say distress of being trans but of course that's not the right way of phrasing it their level of expressed gender dysphoria or asking for support and the thing is if you force someone to therapy it's also not going to work in therapy you need to want to be in therapy and it's also kind of putting the oh hey being trans or gender diverse is a mental health issue and the 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 project with the therapy is still making a plan to come out yes which is still eventually forcing them to come out or gaslighting them into thinking they should come out when they know they're not safe. And yeah, and even coming out in the best of times like we just discussed earlier is difficult. Mm -hmm. Let alone having a quote-unquote plan put in place, which is still not addressing the concerns of being an unsafe house. Until you've talked to students who have had to move out at the age of 14 because they're scared to be at home because they face violence because of being trans, gay, or any, any part of the queer community you don't really understand how even having a plan is not going to fix all the failures of the system. Well, because you can't, like, you can't necessarily make a plan that you don't have the power to implement because you can't put in a plan that's going to keep you safe if you don't have resources. Or if you're seven years old and being forced into this, it hasn't even been addressed. When you're seven, five, four, what, however old you are, you know who you are. And do you have the words or the capacity to have a kind of nuanced conversation in therapy? That's such a good point. Because you forget the sheer age range involved with this. Yeah, I mean, if you're 12 to 16, sure, you have the words to have a kind of nuanced conversation. But if you're younger than that, you might not have these words to have these conversations or to even know what's a safe or unsafe home. Exactly. The last part of that clip that, um, that kind of inspired me to do this one next is when he says um that the the kids need help to be guided through uncertainty especially because of social media so he, he kind of trails off there but that is a, a direct narrative that ties into rapid onset gender dysphoria those are linked ideas this idea that social media has created a social contagion that has made kids uncertain so it's not that they're expressing an aspect of their identity it's that they're confused you know what drives me nuts about this is, and I'm, I'm repeating myself from last week, haven't we been here before? Wasn't this the 80s and gay youth 
and exactly what God said about they're confused and they don't know and give it time and it's a phase. Like, like we did this already, right? We did. And there's also the whole, from the 80s, was it the satanic panic? Right. I feel like we're heading back there. Um, a lot of this conversation he's having is directly quoted from the right wing, very, very conservative movements. It's, we're hearing the same conversation happen in the States and now in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Um, we're heading straight back to where we were before. You know, speaking of social contagion, th- this kind of thinking, this transphobic in, transphobia in politics, and I don't, and, okay, just for the record, because I feel like I'm going to get the pushback on this. I don't know Mr. Higgs personally. I'm not, I don't know his soul. I can only see his behavior and the impact of what he's doing. And that's the lens through which I'm saying this is transphobic and transphobia, right? Because it does, it is having measurable negative impacts on that community. And that's sufficient for me to label it such. Actually speak a lot of, louder than words. Exactly. And, and the, the consequences of your action as the community impacted tells you exist. That to me is the measure about whether that label is warranted. So yeah, same that. goes for me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so that, so the, but the transphobia is contagious. It, it is. And especially when you have someone in, I, I guess I hate to say this, but he's in, he's in power. He's our premier. And if people, we have a, a society that, especially in the Brunswick world, will have a lot of rural communities. that don't have access to proper internet or libraries to do the right research. They're just watching what is being said by our premier and he is, he is in power. He is in charge and he has a lot of influence and he's using that influence to continue spreading this right wing narrative. When he has every resource at his disposal to talk to physicians, experts in the field, people who have developed the standards of care, he has every opportunity to talk to advocates, uh, to talk to people in the trans community. Like this is not your uncle on Twitter. This is not some dude off the street. This is a premier with resources. And he's, him and Hogan, both of them are ignoring Kelly Lamrock's report, a child needs advocates report that just came out last week. 97 pages or 97 pages of research and interviews that that was ignored. Actually, Kelly, there's a great clip from Kelly Lamrock uh, that I'll play now just to set this up a bit. This is, maybe we should talk a bit more about this policy review um, that Kelly Lamrock performed. So... Who, who is Kelly Lamrock? So Kelly Lamrock is our child needs advocate in New Brunswick. Um, I don't really know what the... <laughs> <laughs> and he performed a review of the changes to see how well they aligned with the Charter of Rights of Children. Uh, and here's what he said. The advocate says it violates the Charter of Rights of Children. Frankly, there's no sign anybody before passing this thing did the basic test of going, let's check other statutes and see if we broke the law. Because it does break the law. It's that point blank that these changes break the law. Um, I know a lot of this has come through the lens of like parental rights. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, I find that a hard conversation to have across difference because what you're at, what you, I think the way I want to go forward is to say, it's not that I completely want to erase parental rights. That's a lack of nuance. And that's kind of not a good faith argument about what, critics of these changes are saying it's that parental rights aren't the only rights that exist yeah there are privacy rights um parents do not own children the state does not own children no one owns anyone anymore <laughs> and it's also you gotta look at the lens of what they're saying parental rights because there's many lenses of parental rights um and there's been also some talk um i try to say that i have too much speculation you know, of where the parental rights movement comes from. We're hearing it against Saskatchewan, we heard it in the States, and there is some aspect of this parental rights conversation that comes from this right-wing movement, especially in the, in the 
in the um, Christian community of this far right Christian community of what parental rights means, and is basically eliminating any rights of the child. It's like you had just said, children are the property of parents, and they're really not. No, the parents have responsibilities towards their children, but they're not entitled to telling their children who to be, and they're like they're not entitled to violate the charter rights of children. And we're also seeing it again back to the states and with even like libraries where parents are demanding that school libraries tell them what books their child's checking out. And that again is another violation of rights. Yeah. It comes back to the parents are in control of what children can and can't do. Definitely. And so it's, it's interesting the context in which these changes have come up, the rhetoric that's being used around them, because we hear the echoes. And I, I, again, it's not the full anti-trans bills that we've seen come out of the States at times. Uh, but I can't help but wonder, are you gauging an appetite? Are you seeing what, who this will galvanize? Like, maybe that's cynical. And, and like I said, I don't, I don't know any of the people involved uh, personally, and I've never been in politics. Um, but I can't help but wonder how, how deep those echoes go. Yeah, and that's also another conversation that has, because the thing is, like, gender dysphoria has nothing to do with policy 713. He's also made other comments about uh, gender reassignment surgery and other aspects of medical transitioning, which has nothing to do with policy 713. So how deep does he, how far does he want this to go? How deep are these conversations happening behind the scenes and what's coming next? Right, because issues around medical transition has to do with adults, full stop. Yes, yeah. Um, it might be worth going into some of the things that Hogan has said about the, uh, so Hogan is the education minister and he's had some comments on policy 713 as well. So to tee this one up a little bit, um, this is a clip that came out the day prior to our recording. So this will, by the time this episode's released, this will have happened about two weeks ago. And um, education minister Bill Hogan is in the process of denying that the policy 713 changes discriminate against gender diverse youth. And this is what he had to say about that. Through the child and youth advocates work and additional feedback we received after the policy was updated, it is clear further clarification is needed in some areas, particularly around some of the definitions used, how the students will be supported through major life changes. I'll provide an overview of the changes that have been made. The definitions of legal, formal, and informal use of names have been added and the use of names in the classroom and in extracurricular activities has been identified as formal. So decoding this was a bit of a struggle for me because you assume when someone is responding to criticism that they would then respond to that criticism by saying, oh no, that is the criticism is incorrect. We're not actually doing that. Here's what we're doing instead. Mm -hmm. he's, um, it sounds like he's completely ignoring everything that Kelly Lairmark just said. It also sounds like they're just rephrasing the thing we already were like, please don't do that. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's doubling down on yeah. what, what he had previously said. Exactly. So he talks about having a legal, formal, and informal name. So your legal name, that, that felt straightforward to me. And an informal name made sense to me as well. It would be like your nickname. Uh, you know, like, like my, my legal name is Amanda. My nickname is Anna. You know, like that's, yeah. that's an informal name. So do you know how a formal name would differentiate from a legal name? I've been trying for the last... 24 hours or so to figure this out and they seem to be the exact same thing that's what i thought because a formal name 
is just your legal name, right? That's, uh, well, anyways, that that was not clear anyways. And I even looked over the, the new act, uh, the quote unquote new act uh, in the definitions and nothing was really clear there either. So it's more confusion. So it's more confusion, but it, at face value, assuming that the formal name and the legal name are the same, that children would be there's that word again encouraged to use their formal name in the classroom and extracurricular activities to simplify paperwork and what's even more confusing is that i was reading in another article that apparently if youth are going to see these school psychologists or social workers they are allowed to use their informal name which is their chosen name that's here that's in this too hang on i'll pull that up okay in addition to section in addition section 6.3.2 now states that if a student is not able to give consent to talk to their parent regarding a preferred first name, which is attached to a specific gender identity other than what they were born with, uh, for record keeping purposes uh, the, and daily management purposes, they will be encouraged rather than directed to speak with an appropriate professional support person that we have in our schools and to uh, develop a plan so that sometime maybe they'll be able to talk to their parents. Okay, so that's a bit of a topic change because that's the so that does not that's not a clip that directly addresses that um, support staff mm -hmm. and school psychologists would be per permitted. I think was the language to I use. Th yeah, I think so. Which I mean, it's, these poor kids, right? Like they go to their their school support person and they get affirmed. They get use their names, their gender. Then they go back to the classroom and once again they're dead named and misgendered. I, I how is this going to help the child? Right, uh, and. Again, that encouraged rather than directed to make a plan language is, uh, okay, so slightly better, I guess, some felicitations, is that the right word? Facilitated? Well, well bravo, <laughs> bravo, everyone, for not forcing kids to make a plan to come out to their parents. Um, but there is a still a power difference. And when your teachers and your counselor are telling you to do something as a student, you, you know, you're put in a position where th that's, what's the, you know, it's, it's not the same as if a peer to peer is making a request of you. Exactly. And it's, they're also dangling a, dang, dangling a carrot in front of them because it's like, oh, if you want to be respected and affirmed, you have to go here. Yes. If you don't go there, well, then I'm going to continue. I have to continue misgendering and dead naming you. So where's the choice? And the for records thing is just, bonkers to me like i i went by anna in high school it's not the same i'm not i'm not making a false equivalency but like my teachers could call me anna and still keep accurate records of who i am exactly <laughs> like is everyone now going to be called like if your name is like william boggs every, no one can call you bill or will anymore like it, it's it's a policy that doesn't it, it's not it's more important to have trans names respected because it's not the equivalent of a nickname. But I am saying that the rule as written is not going to be equally applied. It's really not. If you look at the policy closely, the preferred name section, the from what I'm understanding, cisgendered students can have any, can go by Anna, for yeah. instance. But yet the transgender diverse student cannot have that as a nickname. And even before the policy was changed, records were still kept fine. Report cards are still in their legal first name, even if they had officially transitioned at home. There was no issue with record keeping, like at all. So I don't know where he's going with this or what his point is with this. It doesn't like it doesn't feel like it's getting at what people are concerned about. 
and it and it I just don't understand how this is what the response is. I don't either. And honestly, there was really no complaints made. And if there was any complaints made, it was just like a red herring. Oh, uh, this is concerning to one or two people. So I'm going to make a whole big thing about it and turn everything upside down and have zero protections for trans and gender diverse kids. Uh, that, uh, like, and you know what? We don't, we don't even have to just quote it ourselves. We can get um, the direct, like we, can, we have a clip that's addressing exactly that concern. Are you just using this issue though to create a wedge, to get a reaction, to draw support from a socially conservative base? Is there really that much of a problem? When you say hundreds, for example, the child and youth advocate said you only turned over three of them, three complaints. Vashi, this became when this became known by the public. That's when the 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 whole um, the complaints, the concerns, the parents started to get engaged, and it became known when there was a professional development day on back on May fifth. That's when all of this really came to light, and that's when parents started to question, "What is this? This this is this is purely about the role of parents in a child's upbringing, and how do we find the the common ground so children are protected." and parents are involved and at the end of the day everybody is part of that child's uh, life and part of their experience through their early years so there it is there were not complaints going into it after this was made what is this professional development day he's talking about in may do you know anything uh, yeah about this? so pride pride in education uh which is a group of teachers that kind of you know they come together to support queer and trans youth and they're actually behind the development of policy 713 um, they came, they had, um, kind of a, a, a training day that was supposed to be supported by the Department of Education. That's a whole other thing. Uh, the, the funding was pulled and there's a protest outside because they're doing training on, uh, SOGI, so sexual orientation, gender identity training, um, so that they'd be ready to support their, their queer and trans students in the classroom. And then that funding was pulled, there was protest happening and, I think a couple days after that was when this whole review started and then all these other things kind of followed suit. That's okay. That's what I thought because I was like, May, isn't that when the review roughly kind of got going? It's like, yes, obviously people are going to be more engaged with something controversial in the news cycle that doesn't really get at the fundamental underlying question of, hey, so any policy that comes out quietly uh, that gets minimal complaints three were released so are you going to review every policy that has three complaints well and that's the question because honestly there's probably been complaints against other policies I, I i don't know that for sure but i can theorize you know people have concerns and complaints about a lot of things to do with their kids which is understandable but to start an entire review and to strip away the rights of queer and trans students because of three complaints that is just ridiculous it is honestly disheartening and a form of discrimination and i do not feel comfortable with the process that was engaged here because the review was not um cleared like it was not debated it was not uh put forth to like publicly to to get feedback from the community about whether this review was warranted um like who was consulted who informed the need for this review there's not been a lot of transparency none and that's one of the main issues here and when you have your own cabinet ministers walking out oh that too that is a clear sign of hey maybe i should slow down step back and let the experts handle this experts said hey come to us we'll help you handle this he didn't go to them none there was no transparency no 
no answers to any any main questions. People are asking the same questions over and over again, like, who are you consulting? Why are you doing this? And is there really a need for this? And now the most credible review of the review has said there that these changes were literally illegal. Exactly. And that there, and then for him to come out, what, a week later and be like, oh, by the way, I'm doubling down. I'm not actually going to do anything. That is just blatant, blatant transphobia, in my opinion. I agree. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I guess that's why we're here. <laughs> um, I think this would be a good moment to move into because like, I'm, I'm kind of checking in with myself emotionally. And sometimes in the face of, of, um, of problems that I feel small in front of, because this is like, these are the most powerful people in our province making changes that honestly, that I find scary. Very scary. Um, and I think feeling alone with those feelings is really difficult. So I think it's a good time to talk about the two rallies that are going to be taking place. There's one in Fredericton on September 3rd. And then there's the rally that was announced last week uh, that will be taking place in Moncton on September 10th here at uh, 232 Botsford Street on the second floor. We are going to be having um, a rally. And also we are going to pull together as the community and have a party because we deserve some self-care during these, during all of this. So there's going to be, uh, we're going to have drag queens. We're going to have a queer market, an amazing artist who's can confirm that they will be there. And we have two different actually trained to support trans youth counselors who'll be there to meet and greet, shake hands, let you know what they do and what they're about. Um, we are going to make phone calls we are going to send letters we are going to send emails we are not backing down um 100 and i mean it, it, we also need queer joy we also need a celebration because exactly. you know it's been it's been heavy this yes. has been a heavy hard summer and we need to our, our kids our youth in this province need to know that they are supported and that's something you see firsthand right yeah 100 i'm like you know as queer adults as queer and trans adults non-binary you know the whole gamut we we our kids are seeing us they're watching what we're doing they're watching how we're handling this and they're they are aware of everything going on so we need them to see that we are here that we're okay and that we will look after them yeah i i just think that's so important something that's been that's really weighed on me as someone who who really wants to be a good ally and be stepping into that role at a time when all this heaviness is coming down the pike is the concern I have that anyone with a grudge or anyone with um, kind of violence in their hearts sees this as galvanizing, sees this as permission, sees this as validating. And we have seen an uptick in incidents. We have seen an uptick in, in discrimination and fear and shaming of the LGBTQ plus community in this province. Uh, yeah. Even with the adults, um, I've had a few instances myself and, you know, it, it is, kind of dividing the province um it is galvanizing i've heard instances of straight up like discrimination and violence against a lot of activists in this province um bathrooms have become more of a battleground here um and that's just it's not okay at all and we need allies we need supports and we need just people to step up and say you know what it's not okay yeah and i wasn't sure if i was going to say this on the podcast but i but i feel the need to say it i am concerned that if if allies and activists and the community doesn't pull together now that this will become a playbook elsewhere in canada it, and we've already seen that honestly uh this week well the week that we're recording 
Saskatchewan and Manitoba have publicly announced that they're following suit with the 16 and under name change policy. And we've all been concerned that eyes are on us. Eyes are on what we're doing here, both the queer community and also the conservative governments uh, are watching what we're doing here. Yeah. And like, and, uh, and I, uh, by the, when I say the community, I, I don't just mean the queer community. I mean the community at large who care about children. <laughs> yeah. Like we need to show up right now. We do. And I mean, when you have international publications watching what we're doing, you know, there's a lot of things happening here that aren't right. Absolutely. Um, Please keep an eye on the Well and Fair Facebook page. Obviously, we're going to have more information about all the amazing artists and drag artists and uh, vendors who are going to be coming together here in the, the Botsford building to celebrate trans joy, to celebrate the fact of us pulling together at a time when it's needed. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much for coming on today, Nikki. Well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, I know it's a long drive to come out here. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of construction, which is... Oh gosh, and yeah. it's, it's not the world's most interesting highway. It's it's very trees. So yeah. once I, you get past Moncton, it's fine. But from Franklin to Moncton, it's just trees. Uh, so, anyways, thank you for enduring that to be here to share your perspective on stuff. All right, thank you. Bye. Well and Fair is brought to you by La Station Workspace, working in partnership with O Strategies. La Station is a co-working space that brings people together in Moncton, New Brunswick for community and collaboration. Well and Fair is hosted by me, Anna Larad, and produced by Elevate Studios. This podcast has been brought to you in part by O Strategies as a part of their 18-month Solutions Lab on Housing in Greater Moncton, funded by the CMHC under their National Housing Strategy. Whether you are looking to clarify your strategy, enable innovation, or foster leadership, O Strategies uses simple tools and structures to help organizations and communities achieve better outcomes and deliver best possible outcomes via a human-centered lens. Committed to achieving concrete, sustainable, and inclusive results, O Strategies will help you build your team's capacity so that you can feel confident facing whatever the world throws your way. If you're in need of a helping hand in this ever-changing environment, O Strategies can help. Get started online today at ostrategies.ca or find them on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.